And we're reminded of the prophet who asks God when Jerusalem was under siege to let his servant see the angel armies of the Lord. And the servant's eyes were opened. And it draws me to Jesus. And you can imagine on Good Friday, and he looks into a realm that no one else sees. 60,000 troops at the ready. And you hear the captain say, my king, you give me the word and we're coming. And he stays his hand because he is secure even in a dangerous place. And this is what it means for our God to come and find us. This is what it means for us to create beauty and goodness in the world, especially in places where we least expect to find it or for it to emerge or for us to be able to create it. That was Dr. Kurt Thompson, and this is the Things Above podcast. Well, we are back. I am back with Dr. Kurt Thompson for part two of a discussion that we started. So many incredible things were said by Kurt, and I was trying to keep up with them and then looked and went, oh, my goodness, we are out of time. So I begged, (laughs) pleaded, did everything, say, Kurt, would you come back? And he said yes, because he's a Christian. No, that's not just why. (laughs) Christians do set boundaries. Sometimes we have to say no. But you said yes, so here we are. And I'm so glad because your your new your your latest book, um, The Soul of Desire: Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community, is it's one of the best books I've read in the last couple of years, and I just love it. It I I love when people affirm things that I <laughs> that I yeah. am also yeah. learning and trusting and living into. So yeah. as I read it, I kept going, yes, yes, yes. And mm. but let let's talk now because. We laid the foundation in the previous episode. If you haven't listened to this, ladies and gentlemen listening, please go back and listen to the previous episode where Kurt unpacks a lot about interpersonal inter, interpersonal neurobiology. But I want to talk about, well, in right there in the title, you've got soul, the soul mm-hmm. of desire. I want to talk about the soul and I want to talk about desire. So mm-hmm. the soul's a big thing. That word mm-hmm. is everywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. we, it's in our music. It's in our soul food, soul mate. So it's, it's a huge word. Mm. Uh, it's in the Bible, but mm. <laughs> we don't often think about what it is. So mm. teach us about the soul. What, how do you define it? Well, you know, it's, it's a good question. I, uh, and, and I have to say that I don't, um, I, I think, I, I, you know, I'm not a biblical scholar, but uh, I, t- to my knowledge, uh, not unlike uh, the, the word sin, the Bible doesn't give us a Webster's definition of the word soul. It doesn't say, oh, this is what it is. This is what it, what it amounts to. Instead, it gives us, uh, the, you know, it, it reflects people's experience of it. It reflects what, you know, people talking about it. It reflects, it's like I'm listening to people, you know, who grew up in this, in, in, in this faith community of, of Hebrews and Christians talking about their soul as if they knew what they were talking about, but they don't come out and tell me exactly what it is in modern terms about what that means. But I think, you know, one of the things that we can, that we do get a handle on is this, this sense that when we use that word, we are really, uh, we're hinting at this notion of uh, the, uh, the essence, the central essence of my awareness of myself. Some part of me, we, we, it, and, and that I, I, I mentioned to people that, you know, when we when we listen to the Psalms, when David says, uh, why art thou downcast, my soul? David talks to his soul. Right. So there is this sense in which there is my soul. And there's the part of me that does the talking to my soul. And and so we we, we get some picture that uh, the soul is something that is perhaps even separate from other parts of me, maybe separate from my body. And there's, of course, great even among Christians, great philosophical, anthropological debate about, you know, the essence of these things. And so I, 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 it's way above my pay grade to define it. But again, I think uh, what, I, what I tend to imagine is that the soul is uh, less a thing than it is a place. Uh, that it is a place where 
the the different portions of who we are that make up what it means for us to be human my sensing imaging feeling thinking embodied mind comes together it converges in this space that i give a name to i call it my soul and i want that space to be the space out of which i then we talked about in the last episode out of which i pay attention to the world in a way that is going to be life-giving rather than life-sucking. I want to not just pay attention to the world outside my skin. I want to pay attention to the world inside my skin. What am I sensing in my body, imaging, feeling, thinking, all those things. And so we're really talking about, I think, getting down to the the essence, the Mm. central place of where the essence of who we are resides as the best parts of us converge together. And that also includes, uh, you know, my soul certainly uh, is about me, but it is not only about me. It is also about you. It also like my soul contains parts of you because I don't really, you know, who am I? Like I can tell you I'm Kurt, but I'm actually Kurt who is married to Phyllis and who is the father of Rachel and Nathan. And the fact that they are in the world shapes my soul. I can't get away from that. I can't get away from right. the fact that even though you and I, Jim, have had, uh, you know, infrequent contact, I can't get away from the fact that being on a recording with you, let alone being in the room with you in that restaurant that we remember, uh, it, it grounds me. It, it, it has me in a space of being seen. It has me in a space of, uh, you know, exhale Hmm. has me in a space of comfort and confidence. And so my soul isn't just a thing that belongs to me. It also part belongs to you. And, um, uh, that's kind of perhaps way too wordy an answer, but that's, that's no, it's, it's really, really good. You know, I mean, Dallas Willard, of course, he wrote renovation of the heart and he has a whole chapter on the soul. It is a difficult one. It's the most elusive. I think Carl Barth said, if you're going to read the Old and New Testament to try to figure out what the soul is, kind of as you said, is there isn't a, a Webster's definition. But we do see these expressions of the soul, certainly in the Psalms, which are the soul book of the Bible, as Lewis said. Um, and so we see the soul for like what it is and does. The thing that's been helpful for me, Kurt, let me see what you think about this, is to think about, uh, obviously the soul is, is, a, is a non-physical substance or reality. I can't chop you up or chop me up and find my soul like I can, mm-hmm. like I can my kidneys or something. Mm-hmm. But it is very much a, a part of me. It's that essence, uh, a deep part of who I am mm-hmm. that integrates every part. So, so for example, I think about when I, um, if someone says something that is embarrassing to me, uh, my soul experiences that and then it connects to my body's, you know, it's an embodied soul. My body will do something like turn my face red or mm-hmm my heartbeat or, or, or I'll begin to get nervous at a certain situation. Right. So our, our, we're embodied souls are, and in soul bodies. And so when I think about the importance of that, I think, wow, the soul is just so incredibly important. I think we all intuitively know it. That's why we'll say things like, well, in the depths of my soul, or I love right. you with all my soul, right. because it's this real deep place. Right. Is that what you'd say? Yeah. So I'll just say this. I, I had the opportunity a few years ago to, uh, you know, spend some time at a, at a university on the West Coast, a Christian university um, that had another Christian university up up the road from it, and they had competing philosophy departments that huh. uh, have have very different notions of of the soul. And uh, what was striking to me about these competing philosophies is that is that one philosophy uh, understand the soul as this thing that we have, and the other uh, school spoke more about the soul as being a thing that we are. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, talked about the soul as it's an embodied thing and that my, you know, it's not the same thing as my body and so forth. And at the same time, uh, when we say things like, well, my face got red, now that's not my soul getting red because my soul's not embodied. And I have to say, you know, I, th- this is, this is where I, um, where I'm, wh- my curiosity emerges because what's curious to me is like, you got like, People who have more smarts in their pinky than I have in my entire brain in both of these schools of thought, and they're really, really smart, and yet they have such diverging 
ideas about what the soul is. You know, believers, you know, Jesus followers, believers in the new heaven and new earth, and so forth and so on. And I thought, like, that reality uh, uh, highlights for me the mystery of this. Yeah. And it, and it also speaks to the notion that, uh, you know, not just, well, is, 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 is it embodied or is it not embodied? It's, it's less about that than about the limits of my mind to discern where the material world and the non-material begins and ends. And, 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 and so this notion that, and, 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 and I think this is important uh, for us as we talk about loving God with all of our mind, because if I, if I think that uh, what I do with my body uh, is just an, is, is something different than what I'm doing with my mind or with my soul, like all you have to do is like posture yourself, cross your arms in the middle of a difficult conversation and see what happens. Hmm. And suddenly you discover that your soul is being shaped by the very act of crossing your arms because you're sending a message not just to the yeah. others that you don't feel comfortable and you say, please stay away, but you're also sending the message to yourself that like, I don't feel safe. I need to protect myself by crossing my arms. And so where does my body end and my soul begin? I don't know, but I do right. know this. I do know this. I do know that what this, what, what neuroscience is teaching us is that I, it's, it's really incumbent upon me to be paying attention to the parts of me that I am aware of embodied, uh, you know, and, and we're learning more and more with quantum mechanics. We're learning more and more and more about the reality that it's really difficult to know where my body stops mm. and where your body starts and the impact that I'm having on your body and all these kinds of things that are taking place. But it does help us recognize that if, you know, it, it, so it, there are moments when I'm like, I, I think like, oh, I feel much more comfortable in the philosophy department of that university. And then there are other moments when I'm much more comfortable in the philosophy department of the other university. And uh, what this, to me, you know, practically speaking for our listeners, I would say this, that again, when we talk about the mind being an embodied and relational process that emerges from within and between brains, whose task it is to regulate the flow of energy and information, I realize that's a lot of words, but the sense that I'm, it's an embodied and relational process that my soul is in play in every single dimension of what's happening here. When I go to the, when I go to Safeway and I walk to the checkout line and there's a clerk there who looks down in the dumps, my soul is going to extend to that person mm -hmm. and my body is going to be how it happens. And, you know, I don't know if it's my soul that's or not. Like, I don't know. I know that in paying attention though, to as many things as I can, that loving that other first comes from some sense of my first myself being loved in body and spirit and mind and soul, all those different, all those different things. Mm, that's so I'm good. Perhaps wandering off the path. No, no, that's really far. good. That's really good. Well, you know, one of the things that I discovered, uh, in writing this, the book that I have just finished the, the good meal for you. It, when I talk about the soul, the thing that really became clear to me, and it was studying Balthasar, it was studying Adrian von Kahn and some other writers was, yes, the soul's elusive. It's a mystery as it should be. It should be beyond our comprehension because it's so amazing. But we do know things about our soul in the things that we desire, in the things right. that we long for. And that's what I, I love about what your book does, because as I think about what I do know is that in, in the in the depths of who I am, I want to, as we said in the last episode, I want to be known, mm -hmm. my whole story, not just mm -hmm. parts. I want, mm -hmm. and I don't feel like you know me unless you know mm -hmm. those those things that I'm prone to hide. Mm -hmm. I want to be known. I want to be wanted. I want to be desired. I want to be loved for who I am. Mm -hmm. I want to. I don't like to feel guilt or shame, mm -hmm. which you talk about so well in in the Soul of Shame, the previous book to this one. Uh, my soul does not like shame at all. It's, mm. it's like, it's mm -hmm. just, it, it can't mm -hmm. endure it. I'll do anything mm -hmm. to get out of it. Um, and I long for a spiritual connection with God. There's a transcendent dimension to my soul. Mm -hmm. There's a longing for eternal life that's built mm -hmm. into, so all those things. But what I love, this is a long way of telling you another thing I love about your book, mm -hmm. is that you're just front and center saying desire, which we normally think is bad. As Christians, mm -hmm. many of us get that narrative that, if, if, if it's, if it's desirable, it must be mm. sinful. Mm. But you're saying mm. 
No, no, no. Our, our, the, we are desiring creatures. Mm-hmm. I'll let you riff on that idea because it's really central to the book. Well, you know, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I grew up in a place where the whole, I, I mean, my, my, you know, s- some of my own experience growing up is exactly as you described this sense that you gotta, you gotta be wary. You gotta be careful about what you desire. You know, there are certain people that you can't be around certain people you can't date certain, all these that you might desire. Yeah. But I know that, I know that, I, I know she's Catholic, but man, she's cute. And like, why, why can't you be cute and Catholic and, and, and dateable? If you're a Quaker, if you're a Quaker, you know, all these, all these things. And, um, this notion that desire, you know, I, I, if, if you just look at, if you just look at uh, neurodevelopment, right. A baby comes into the world and the baby is telling you right away that she is, she has appetites. She has longing. She has longing for fundamental things. She wants to be fed. She wants to be warm. She wants to be comfortable. Like there's this longing for this. And, and, and babies don't have much margin for error. The moment they are uncomfortable, like to any slightest degree, like they have that peel of a cry that says, I, I have an appetite. I have a longing to be cared for. And eventually this grows into this appetite for we would say being known you see the child longing to be seen this appetite this longing to be seen and then we eventually see that this these these children start with without even having to be told to do this they don't we don't have to go to school to learn this they start to make stuff developmentally and they make stuff and they bring it to you so they don't just like to make things they have a desire to like create things they bring it to you and here's this picture made by your three-year-old and they want you to put it on the refrigerator and then like have the neighbors come over and charge them money to look at it. Like they, they, this is what they want. There is this longing for creation. And, and this is without the Bible. I don't need the Bible yet. Right. Then we open the pages of the Bible. We see that like the, the, the writers of Genesis are so brilliant they're such great screenwriters, right? They are, they're not going to explain absolutely everything. They're not going to pause and, at, at, at the end of every verse in Genesis 1 and say, well, here's what we intend you to understand by what we're saying. No, they're just saying that, and God saw that it was good. But the translation of that word could easily be, and God saw that it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. This notion that beauty is important to God. It wasn't just good as in like, yes, that's, that's functionally good. It's beautiful. And moreover, we would say that the beauty that God sees is not just this thing that is over there that he's analyzing and saying, yes, that's a beautiful thing that I just did. It is as if the beauty emerges as a function of God seeing it. Hmm. And this is really crucial because everything after this, let us make man in our own image. We are made to make things. We are made, if we're going to be made in God's image, we are made as people who, in the seeing of the things that we make, the beauty of those things is drawn forward. Hmm. And this is... you know this is this is most powerfully represented even in the in the children that are born to us. This sense that our children experience their beauty being called forth by the way that we look at them. And when we say, you are a beautiful boy, you're a beautiful girl, we're not just giving them objective information about the thing that we see. The very act of giving them the experience of being known is a drawing forth of their own beauty. In the same way that Michelangelo draws forth the beauty of the Pietà by carving out all that excess granite. The way Makoto Fujimura brings forth the beauty of these paintings in his Nionga expertise. But the way, especially, that beauty is then called forth and in so doing deeply connects us, and that connection leads to further creation of further beauty. And so the child knows that when she's bringing you her Crayola crayon piece of paper, 
she doesn't just hand it to you. There is this sense, this expectation that when she hands it to you, delight is going to be coming, chasing after her. That the beauty itself becomes an object that is facilitating the deepening of her connection to you. Mm. And that facilitation only leads her to run back off and make more stuff. (laughs) Right. Which is what we're all called to do in community. Then this question of what is the next new artifact of beauty that we are not just called to create, but also being curious about what is the beauty that we are imagining that God is calling us to become? Beauty isn't something we're just making. It is something that we are becoming. And are we willing to take the risk of imagining that to be the case? Mm. So good. That's so good. Well, okay, you're covering a lot here, Kurt. So listeners are hopefully tracking as I'm trying to, because you're saying so many great things. But desire, as we've said, quite often as Christians, we think that's it must be sin. If, if it was fun, it must have been sin. If it was delightful, it must have been evil or something. But you're, you're saying, no, no, we're creatures created with a lot of desires. Desire in itself is not uh, necessarily sinful or evil at all. And now it certainly can be. It can be twisted and so forth. But uh, so you're just affirming that, wait, Whoever made us, made us with a lot of desires. And one of those, of course, big desires is for God, and it is for beauty. And I I love, uh, on page six, you quote Simone Weil, who I love, uh, who writes, uh, I'll quote the quote that you quote, which is, she says, uh, in all that awakens within us the pure and authentic sentiment of beauty, there is truly the presence of God. Mm -hmm. There's a kind Mm -hmm. of incarnation of God in the world Mm -hmm. of which beauty is the sign. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what she's saying there, and of course, her life is fascinating in itself. But what she's saying is, look, when you encounter genuine beauty, you're actually encountering the presence of God. Mm-hmm. That's an incarnation. So we're we're designed to desire and we're designed to desire beauty. Mm-hmm. But right away, I, I imagine some listeners may be thinking, okay, but what about evil? Which you talked about a little bit in our in the last episode mm-hmm. uh, together. Talk about how our desires can get twisted because you're, you're very honest when you confess and say, look, uh, a lot of my desires are things, or I desire things a lot more than I desire God sometimes. And mm-hmm. it's not always mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think, you know, in some respects we would say that evil depends upon desire for it to have. I mean, evil is parasitic. It is not, it is not generative in and of itself. It is parasitic. It depends upon my desire in order for it to gain traction, in order for it to devour the beauty that God intends. And in that sense, of course, we, we, we and we would say, well, you're, you're right. I mean, when we, when we read the story in Genesis 3 of what happened and then everything else, you know, sin is crouching at your door. This is Genesis 4 when God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. In Genesis 3, desire turns to devouring. And so we have, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm now 59. And in the last nine months, I have been exploring more than I ever had before the ways in which my bent desires in my life as an adult are so deeply tied to the things that happened to me in the first two decades of my life. And there is not a moment when I am misdirecting my desire that is not about something that happened when I was a kid in which, and we may talk about this, in which my longing to be seen, soothed, safe, or secure, that that longing didn't get met and I had to find a way to cope with it. And as we say, like shame in, you know, in, in Genesis three, shame shows up long before any fruit gets eaten. There is a wounding that is taking place with the woman by the serpent before she eats any fruit. And that wounding means that the taking of the fruit becomes a way to cope. It is not, just a simple act of disobedience. I'm doing something I was told not to do. It is a way for me to cope with the underlying distress 
that is being created by the isolation and the shaming that is taking place in the context of this conversation. And so there are certain things that happen to each one of us, small T traumas, small moments in which we experience things that are painful and difficult long before we're even aware that this is what's happening. And we develop coping strategies that eventually kind of mushroom into all kinds of things in which, yes, desire seems to be like a pretty dangerous thing. Yeah. Because of so many things that happened in, in, in times and spaces in my life in which I didn't, I really wasn't paying attention. I didn't know that that's what was happening, but I developed these habits, these practices and so forth that lead me down roads that I don't want to go down. But now I have formed these habits of devouring that are depending upon my longing, my desire. And the problem then, Jim, is that we can say, well, I'm just going to cut off desire as a way to keep myself from going on down that road. But the problem is like, it's like saying there is a wellspring of water that is, that is springing up. And I somehow have channeled that water uh, to flood my, to flood somebody else's land rather than channel that water to uh, irrigate somebody else's land. And in order to just, you know, keep from flooding people's land, I'm just going to, I'm just going to cap off the wellspring and you can't. Hmm. Right. Because that is the wellspring where our very life, God, in the same way that evil depends upon desire as a parasite, God depends upon it in order for us to grow up into and be formed into the image of our king. Right. So desire is, that's not bad. That desire is welling up within us, but it goes from desiring to devouring, as you say in the Mm -hmm. book, when those early experiences of uh, the uh, needs of attachment don't happen. And so, I mean, I said in the previous episode, it's, it is that caricature of Freud, you know, just lay down on the couch talking about your mother <laughs> or your father or whatever. Yeah. But there is some truth in that, right? Because we, we do know that many people in therapy in various different forms are going through, as you said, those first two decades where you're going, wow, this is where something in my, my attachment needs didn't mm-hmm. get met. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. beautiful segue, Kurt, excellent mm-hmm. segue. I didn't even coach you in that segue <laughs> to go, to go into uh scene, soothe, safe and secure, which are uh, four different dimensions of, of attachment, right? Attachment mm-hmm. theory. Mm-hmm. So why don't we unpack that a little bit? Cause, mm-hmm. or, or maybe, maybe how about, we'll just start with a basic example with, with scene. Uh, scene would be from my understanding, and this is where you're going to correct me if I'm wrong. But from what I understand, seeing is that we need somebody to say, I see you, I value you, not just that they showed up for a game or something, or they showed up for a play, we readers, not just I see you, but I, I, I see you and I value you. Like mm-hmm. I, you are of, of worth, of dignity, uh, and, and if we're really lucky, you're mm-hmm. precious and you're sacred mm-hmm. and all those things. Mm-hmm. Is that what be- mm-hmm. the need of being seen is about? Right. And, and, it, and again, uh, you know, we track this neurodevelopmentally. I mean, a baby comes into the world and we react to it as adults. Like, you know, we, we, we build entire medical systems around these naked, helpless newborns that come into the world. Large buildings, large medical uh, infrastructures are constructed in order to help women give birth to these small, fragile, vulnerable, naked things. And when they come into the world, we see them. And we don't see them like I see like my dish rag on the kitchen. I just like take it and I take it over to the laundry and throw it in the laundry. No, I see, and I don't, I don't just see it. Like I, I see my thermos over there. I see this baby who is helpless and in need of help. And so we care for the baby, we clean the baby, we bundle the baby up, we bring the baby to the mom, we, we do all kinds of things because we are seeing the baby's fragility, the baby's vulnerability. Mm-hmm. We feel that vulnerability that the baby experiences, and we are doing everything we can to enable that baby to then be soothed. This notion that, so I need we need, and, and, and here, this, this, these four words that we talk about, Jim, what's, what's important for us to know, it's easy for us to think, oh, 
we need these four things to happen to us like in the first seven months of life and then we don't need it anymore. These four words are things that we need until we're dead. Mm. Until we're dead. But if we don't start to practice them when we're at, at the earliest time that we can, it becomes difficult for us to catch up, but it doesn't mean that we're not looking for it. We have a longing for each of these things. And so the child is literally seen. And so I don't just need somebody to see me. I need someone to see my vulnerability, to see my fragility, to see my brokenness. Now it's possible, and, and it is often the case, that I don't know that I need to be seen. Because perhaps I never have been, and I just learned like, well, that's not ever a thing that happens. I don't know that that never ha- that that doesn't happen because I have never had it had the experience to know that I would want the experience. But once I am, once I'm seen, once someone says, "Kurt, I see you," and the part of you that worries that you're, you know, you've been given this thing to do, and you worry that you're not going to steward it well enough, and you're going to be in trouble. You worry about the people that you're going to disappoint here and here and here. I see you. And to have our shame seen mercifully uh, is is a really big deal because it is like the, the newborn baby that comes in like to have their nakedness seen and then cared for, to be moved on and to then to be soothed is this next word. I long to be soothed. And I there are a hundred different ways in which we humans are traumatized and want to be soothed, but aren't. Mm. And if we are then soothed consistently after having been seen, over time, we create for our children a sense in which they feel safe. I I say that. I want us to to be careful about that word. That word, I think, has become now um, hijacked and used, I think, inappropriately at times because we can now we we now kind of like live in a culture in which anytime I'm you know anxious about anything, I just say, well, I don't feel safe, and so I don't have to do that. I won't have to confront that. I don't I don't have to like take any risk. Like, no, I don't feel safe. Um, and so we, I think we have to be careful about its use. But what I'm really talking about when we use that word is that I feel comfortable and confident in the environment in which I'm living, and that's important to know that. To be comfortable and confident does not mean that I don't ever get hurt. I can be safe, completely safe in my house as a six-year-old, running through the house, fall down, cut my, you know, my forehead open on the corner of a desk. Does it mean I'm not safe? No, it means I'm, I'm safe and I can get my forehead cut. But I live in a house in which when that happens, we repair ruptures. If mm-hmm. my parent loses their temper with me when I'm 15, but my dad comes back and says, I should not have spoken to you the way that I did. That's never okay. I know that I'm having a rupture repaired and it's still creating safety for me, but my safety is not something that I experience merely from the outside dangers of the world. One of the other ways in which safety needs to be created is the safety from within me. So for instance, part of what parenting does is that it not only protects children from outside dangers, but it also teaches children to protect them from themselves. There is the part of me as a two-year-old who just wants to run across the street into traffic. The part of me that wants what I want when I want it. And I have to learn restraint. I have to learn that there are things within me that can create problems as well. And so it's not just that I have to be protected from the outside. I also have to be protected from myself and I have to learn to protect others from myself. Hmm. And so safety is a thing that comes to me both from outside my skin as well as inside my skin. And then this fourth word, secure, this is where I would say I I, I have a, I, just a different take. The, these, these four words were coined by Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson in some work that they did a number of years back. And where we differentiate this word security, what I am really inviting people to think about, when we talk about security that separates that then from safety, how are these things different? We were made to make things and to do so outside even the realm in which we have a felt sense of safety. 
So I then go into a world uh, in which I can't guarantee my safety in the way that I might be able to guarantee my safety or be confident about my safety when I am uh, at home. Like I have to go to school and I've never been to school before. And it takes it takes courage for me to go to school. Now, we hope that that can also be a place that eventually I develop the same thing, seen, soothed, safe. But it takes a risk for me to step outside and do that. I may make mistakes. I may get hurt. I will then have to come back to this place where I feel seen, soothed, and safe in order to create security again for me to launch out and do this again. And so this notion of being out in the world and being outposts of beauty and goodness in places that are dangerous is a developmental reality as well as the world of the gospel. I mean, in some respects, when we get to Genesis 126 and the Holy Trinity, we imagine them taking into consideration the possibility of everything that's about to come. And instead of, you know, we, we'd like to, we would, we would expect Genesis 126 to read like every other verse of creation. And God said, let there be humankind. And there was humankind. But instead we read, and God said, let us make mankind in our image. He reflects. Maybe there's a conversation. Mm. Maybe there's a consideration of what's coming. Maybe Jesus looks at Good Friday down the road and says, I'm not sure this is such a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. But instead, God, who is seen, soothed, and safe in the Holy Trinity, now moves into a place of security where he's going to go take the risk that ultimately ultimately finds him finding us on Good Friday. Hmm. And we might say, you know, that doesn't sound like it's very secure. And I reminded of Matthew's gospel where Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest servant. Jesus turns to him and says, do you not know that I could call 12 legions of angels? I could call 60,000 troops. Mm. And we're reminded of the prophet who asks God when Jerusalem was under siege to let his servant see the angel armies of the Lord. And the servant's eyes were opened. And it draws me to Jesus. Mm. And you can imagine. Yeah. On Good Friday. And he looks into a realm that no one else sees. 60,000 troops at the ready. And you hear the captain Mm. say, my king, you give me the word and we're coming. And he stays his hand because he is secure even in a dangerous place. And this is what it means for our God to come and find us. This is what it means for us to create beauty and goodness Mm. in the world, especially in places where we least expect to find it or for it to emerge or for us to be able to create it. Wow. Wow, that was a tremendous walk through those S's, right? Seeing... So it's safe and secure. And in, to see this in the person of Jesus, who is, you know, he is Adam restored, right? He is yeah. the second Adam. He is, in, in Christ, we see that God saying, I'm going to come and become human and do this in the right way, fully human, experiencing everything we're experiencing. But he, he knew that he was seen by the Father. He was soothed by the Father. He felt safe and secure enough. Wow, that's beautiful, Kurt. The way, safe enough to come say, I will literally undergo the worst form of torture and execution that humans have come yeah. up with yeah. because, because I am in this stable, solid place. Right. Um, man, that is so profound. That is so good. And, uh, and that's, you know, as you said, that's where a lot of us struggle because it's somewhere along the line where we grow up with human parents who are broken and imperfect, not God, the father. <laughs> and so we, yeah. we grow up in a world yeah. where we get these deficits as, right. 
Right. Uh, I, I got attachment deficits. I, I wasn't yeah. seen enough or seen in the right yeah. way. I wasn't soothed properly. I wasn't. Yeah. And then I'm going to. So here's just a basic question. And, and maybe it's an unfair question. But what of those so, seen, soothed, safe? So, I mean, when what is a very common way that we humans get a deficit in one of those? And what does that look like in a specific way? Well, I'll, I'll just give you an example. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a house where I was, uh, even though I was the fourth of four sons, but there was 11 years between me and my youngest brother. So they were 18, 16, and 11 years older than me. And so by the time I was five, I was, for the most part, being raised as an only kid. And as I mentioned, I, you know, I, I grew up in this evangelical Quaker household and uh, uh, parents who uh, I, I, I like I have no question, like not even just intellectually. I mean, like I I felt their affection. I felt their delight, their desire, a, a, a lot of things. But I remember uh, and, and of course, these you, you don't there are just a ton of things that you don't know that you don't know until like something happens. And like you wake up and you're like, oh, my gosh, like. There's just this thing that I never, I never had all my life. And so uh, I was 15 and there was, uh, my mom comes to me uh, one day and says, uh, because my, my mom had been the one who in my kind of spiritual formation, formative years, uh, my mom was the one who had conversations with me about God. She was the one who somewhere in the 1970s, when it came out, bought me a copy of the living Bible and gave it to me. I had that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, she came to me one day and said, your dad asked me why it is that you will talk to me about certain things, but you won't talk to him. And, you know, Jim, I was 15 and I already though, I was able to say to her, like, like I said, mom, do you hear what you're asking me? Like, why isn't dad asking me this question directly? Mm. Like there's something about the very nature of what's happening right here between you and me that is the answer to the question. So I grew up in a house where I had no doubt about my father's affection for me. My father was a good man, a God follower. I mean, just, uh, you know, I, 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 I eagerly look to look, I, I, will, I will look for him in the new heaven and new earth. And he was a guy who had his own experience in life, his own traumas. And this is a guy for whom the whole notion of being curious with his sons about their inner lives, being curious with his sons about their spiritual formation, being curious and, and, and informative with his sons about sex, about women, about finances, about like a whole range of things that never happened. There were parts of my experience growing up in which I was just simply never seen by my father. And, you know, there are important places where every son and every daughter, it's important for them to be seen. And to have a curious expression pursued by your parents, like we need that to turn our minds on, to turn our brains on, for us to become comfortable and confident, for us to feel ultimately safe with these things. You know. So about six months ago, my wife and I are having a conversation uh, about finances. And I said to her, you know, uh, every time we have this conversation, I feel like I'm about 10 years old. And she said, well, you know, that's really interesting because um, when we, you know, when we have these conversations, I, I, I feel like you're 10 years old, too. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's not how you're supposed to say. That's how you're supposed to be responding. You're saying, "No, honey, no. You you sound at least like you're 17, like at at the very least. Like I'm I'm. But the point is, is that like there is a part of me that when it comes to really important things in life, I feel anxious about, it and I feel like I'm about 10 years old. But moreover, Jim, like I hate that about me. I hate that I feel like I'm 10 years old. And that I continually send a 10-year-old to do a man's job in my marriage. And that's just one example of like, oh my goodness, like how many different dimensions of my life have not been seen, never were seen, and got stuck at age four 
or 10 or 15? How many of us have any number of different experiences in which perhaps your parents weren't traumatized? Like my parents, I did, I did not grow up in an abusive home, but I grew up in a home where like certain things just never happened. And because of that, I never got the chance to exercise the things I needed to exercise in order for me to become more comfortable and confident in my own skin. And then when those parts show up as the 10-year-old me or the 15-year-old me as an adult and continue to to this day, you know, to the consternation of others around me, you know, it's, I, it, it's, it's shaming. Like, I think, like, what the heck is wrong? Like, why the heck can't I do this right? And I, and I want to, like, take that kid and I, I want to yell at him. I, I want to get rid of him. I want to, like, I want to, you know, dispense with him because, like, he's, he's of no use. He's only cr- causing trouble for me. And this is where we would say, I, I would say, you know, recently I've just been really um, struck with Matthew 19 and where, you know, there, there's different, different iterations of this, different, different, you know, there are different moments where we hear in the gospel about Jesus encounter with children in the presence of the disciples. And in this particular passage in, in Matthew 19 is where Jesus, you know, the, the children are coming or the parents bring their kids to bless them and the, and the disciples are upset about this. Because, you know, they're, they're getting in the way of our mission. You know, we're, we've got, we've, you know, we've got to scale this. We've got to get the, we've got an Instagram thing. We've got all these things we got to do. You just don't, the, the master's too busy to be troubled with children. And Jesus uses these words in Matthew 19. He says, suffer the children to come unto me. For such is the kingdom of heaven. And I thought, like, why does, like, why, why, why does he suffer? Like, why, why can't you just say, like, Guys, be more mature. Let the kids come unto me. And it just, it, it, it dawned on me just a few weeks ago, this notion, Jim, that there are parts of me that, are, that, that, are, that, that haven't been seen, soothed, or made to feel safe, let alone secure. And I hate them. Mm. And Jesus is saying, oh, no, Kurt. You have to change and go back and become that space. You have to find that boy. Mm. Because if you don't, you're going to have a hard time living in my heaven. Because mm. my heaven wants healing. My heaven doesn't want to kill the parts of you that you hate the most. And so it may actually require you to suffer, to move into that space mm. where you're tempted to revisit old painful traumas, old memories of sadness, of grief, of anger. In order for that boy, in order for that girl to be comforted, for that girl at age six who never was seen, soothed, or made to be safe, let alone commissioned in security, And this is where the work of confessional communities becomes important because it's not just me who does this work by myself, but it's my allowing others into the room with that same 10-year-old of mine and hearing them say, Kurt, that should never have happened to him. Mm. We We want to be in the room with him, and we want him to hear us saying, oh my, what a beautiful boy. She wants to hear us saying, what a beautiful girl. We want them to be comforted in order for them to imagine their beauty emerging out of the very place that heretofore we would have wanted to have put them to death. And there is a certain suffering that is necessary in this. Mm. But when we do this work in the context of community, Everything about the process is heightened and changed because we are not doing it alone. Wow, 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 Kurt, that is that is profound, and and thank you for sharing that. I mean, it, those concrete examples really help us grasp and go, okay, there's where that deficit, there's where this, this is how this is still showing up. And what I love about your book is that it's it's a way to say. And you said it so well that Jesus comes in and says, let's heal this. Let's, mm-hmm. I want, I love that image you use about the, the, the Beethoven's ninth, you know, that mm-hmm. the, the cello mm-hmm. isn't playing or the violin mm-hmm. can't do this and this can't right. do the, this. But then like, no, no, Jesus is the maestro who says, let's, 
I want the whole symphony. I want right. all of this to move out of the trauma and into right. beauty. And right. boy, does your book do that. So I would just encourage listeners. The book is The Soul of Desire, Kurt Thompson. And uh, it is it is fantastic. And, and uh, man, I can't say enough good about it. And I can't thank you enough, Kurt, for being on the Things About Podcast. This has been a blessing. You are a blessing to me, brother. Mm. Oh, Jim, thank you so much. I um, It has been way too long since I have been in the room with you. And uh, I, I, uh, I, I, I'm just so grateful to have been invited. It's, 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 it's humbling to be invited to, to do this and, um, uh, to, and to be doing this with you, whose work has been so meaningful and so helpful for me, so helpful for so many. And um, thank you for, uh, thank you for having me be part of the show. Oh, well, hey, and you're going to be a part of the Apprentice Gathering, which is not too soon to talk about, you know. So I will be with you in the same room in (laughs) September of 2022. We will be together for this incredible conference. I'm so excited. And I can tell you, Kurt, we have already had our pre-registrations are uh, more than we've ever had to say that. So mm. I think there's an energy mm. and enthusiasm for mm. this event and you're being a part of there of that is a, is a big part of that. So mm. we, we will get to be by faith. Right I on. say, right right I hope we will right be on. together. You betcha. Bless your brother. I hope you enjoyed this things above conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson. I know I did. He, wow. He has so much to say, so much to learn from him. I hope you join me next time. Until then you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things Above podcast, you can do so on our website, apprenticeinstitute.org. Click the Donate Now button at the top of the page. It's really easy, and it would mean a lot to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, Things Above. <laughs>